difficult week for a lot of different people, and um, for obvious reasons, we know what's happened in our nation, but also what's happened here locally in Texas as well. But then to add to the chaos, and I'm not comparing these kinds of suffering, but to add to the chaos, a tree fell on my house on Thursday. And, and so I'm sitting in the office of my house, up in the front of the house. My wife and my kids are at the gym, and, uh, and I hear this boom. And it was barely raining. There was no lightning. It was just barely raining, no wind. And I thought, that didn't sound like a squirrel. So, and then I walk back to the bedroom, and I see my dog coming down the hallway with her tail between her legs. And she's scared, and she's shaking. She's a border collie. She's kind of skittish like that. And so I walk to the window of the master bedroom and open up the curtains, and I see leaves and branches right above the window. I'm thinking, There's, that's normally not there. And so um, then I go outside, and sure enough, my neighbor has this uh, tree or this, this massive branch, I should say. The whole tree didn't fall, but the whole thing just decided to um, dive right into the power lines from my, to my house and to his house. And so, um, but miraculously, I still had power for some reason. And so um, did a little bit of roof damage, and then we got that squared away on Thursday. And so, but we're good to go. But as I've always said before, I think certain things happen to me when I'm preaching on something in relation to it, and this is consistent, right? And so I think I need to quit my job and find something else to do. This is going to keep happening to me. But I started thinking about this, and you know, it's, it's kind of an analogy I want to use now because it's true, but um, there wasn't really anything major happening in the little rainstorm on Thursday. It was just rain. It was just a little bit of wind, nothing major, but this tree in my neighbor's yard, it's just had enough, and it decided to break, right? And it just, it couldn't sustain the weight of whatever was on it, and so it just decided to break. And so we we're talking about this idea of rooted, what it means to be rooted in Jesus, what it means to be rooted as we go through the book of Colossians, especially for those that are graduating and moving on from here this coming uh, summer. This is especially applicable to you. Um, we really want you to understand that just in a way, you're going to experience storms, you're going to experience things in life that are going to cause you to be under pressure, you're going to cause you to um, want to give up on your faith. And our hope is that your faith does not implode. Our hope is that you can be rooted, sustained for the rest of your life in your walk with Christ. That is our hope and our prayer for you. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians. Go ahead and put my map up on the screen so I can explain this once again for those that may have missed it. But real simple. Paul is writing Colossians along with Timothy, and Paul was in Ephesus for three years, did ministry there. A man named Epaphras came from Colossae to Ephesus, got saved in Ephesus. Uh, Epaphras went back to Colossae, and he walked into a pagan city, a pagan town, and shared his faith and planted churches and saw many come to faith in Christ um, as a result of his ministry there. And so, in a sense, Paul is writing from Rome now in prison. Paul's in prison in Rome, and he's writing to the Colossians to basically warn them and say, do not fall prey to empty ideas, empty philosophies, but stay strong and stay rooted in your faith. And so we're studying this book for two reasons. One is that many of you will walk out of here one day and have to do exactly what Epaphras did, walk into a pagan place and minister the gospel in a place that you feel like has no chance to come to know Jesus, love Jesus, worship Jesus. You're going to have to live your faith out like that, the way that Epaphras did. 
but also because this book is a warning to people, much like yourselves, who are young in their faith, and, and are po it's possible you can fall prey to false ideas just like the Colossians were tempted to do. And so I've titled today, ironically, I've titled today, Rooted in Suffering, which I think is a very appropriate title, especially after the week of our nation and our state, and even um, our church. I mean, Pastor Gary had cancer taken out this week, and which is a great thing, but also a form of suffering as well, obviously. And so look with me at, at Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. 24, it says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from what God, from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. That was one sentence. Three verses, one sentence. I think sometimes Paul deserves an applause. Don't you think? Go ahead and clap for Paul. That he finally inserted, that he inserts a period at some point there. And, uh, but Paul likes to talk in three verse sentences. And so what, you get, what gets lost sometimes when Paul's rambling on and on about stuff is, um, is the ideas of what he's trying to communicate, right? And so I want to hone in on this idea in verse 24 where it says, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. So Paul is saying, it sounds like he's saying at first that Christ's suffering wasn't fully sufficient. It sounds like he's saying... There is something lacking in Christ's afflictions, Christ's suffering for you, and so I'm going to fill in the gap here for you. That's what it sounds like he's getting at. But what he means by this statement when he says, I'm going to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, what he means by that is just because Christ suffered doesn't mean that we won't suffer. Just because, you, because Christ suffered for us doesn't mean that you and I are not going to suffer. Many people think that, Jesus suffered, so I don't have to. Jesus suffered for me, so I don't have to suffer because he did that for us. Now, in a sense, that's partly true because he does take our punishment for our sin, so we don't have to suffer eternally for our sins. But, on the other hand, the concept in Scripture is not that Jesus suffered, so I don't have to, but the, con the concept is exactly reversed. It's reversed because we can say it this way. Jesus suffered... So doesn't it make sense that those who follow him would also have to suffer? In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Paul says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What Paul is saying is that Jesus suffered and we get to share in his sufferings. So suffering for Jesus is a get to, not a have to. Now, I'm not saying you have to go out and look for it and try to find it and put yourself on the street corner with a, a sandwich board and a megaphone screaming at people saying, you know, turn or burn so that you can bring suffering on yourself. I'm not saying that you have to do that because if you're preaching the gospel in any form, suffering is going to come and find you. It will. And so Paul's not looking for ways to add to his suffering. He's not a glutton for punishment. But as long as his suffering, as long as his suffering is caused by his preaching, he's going to rejoice in it and say, you know, 
Preaching the gospel is more important to me than my comfort, and so I'm going to rejoice even when I suffer. And so look back at Colossians 1, 24 to 29. The main thing that I want you to get from this part of the passage is this. God often uses suffering to advance the gospel. God often uses suffering to advance the gospel. It's not just that he puts up with suffering or just it happens to be there, but he actually uses suffering as a catalyst to advance the gospel. If God needed you to suffer so the gospel would spread, would you do it willingly? If God needed his people to suffer so the gospel can spread in advance, would you do it willingly or reluctantly or not at all? You see, in our culture, we follow the path of least resistance. We want to be comfortable. We will sacrifice, we will sacrifice everything just to be comfortable. And that's an idol, right, for many of us. Many of us think if something is hard, it must not be God's will. If I'm hitting any kind of resistance, then it must not be God's will. We call it a closed door. God just closed the door on that. You think Paul could have said that? You think when Paul was in three different shipwrecks, when he was flogged like Jesus was five times, do you think he could have seen that as a closed door? You know, I think that God's closing the door on this whole mission trip thing. I think God's closing the door on the gospel going into Europe and Rome. I don't, I mean, how can it be God's will that I get flogged five times when I'm doing what's right? That can't be God's will. How in the world is that God's will? When you think of all the suffering that happened this past week, uh, the bombings in Boston, the explosion in the West, even Pastor Gary going through cancer, even as small as it is, even a tree falling on my house, um, not one of those things happened because of someone's faith. They just happened. They were kind of random. We know nothing's random because God is sovereign. God's in control. But when it comes to suffering, they're kind of random acts, many of them. Not one of those things happened because of someone's faith. Paul is getting suffering and persecution directly because of his faith. Because he is doing the very thing he's supposed to be doing, it's causing suffering for him. Imagine, imagine having to suffer for doing what's right, not just having to put up with life's sufferings in those random ways. Look at the next slide, First Peter chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. It says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So what he's saying, what Peter is saying is if you're going to suffer, suffer for doing what's right. If, if you're going to suffer, it's better to suffer for what's right than what's wrong. I mean, is the person who is suffering for doing wrong, the person who's going to trial, getting thrown in jail, is that person suffering? Are, are they proud of their suffering? Now, maybe the people who believe in street cred and think that it's an honorable thing to commit crime, get in, go to jail for that, maybe that's, that's one kind of person. But for the most of us, is anyone going to be bragging about suffering as a result of murdering or stealing something? I don't think so. But Paul is saying, don't be ashamed if you suffer as a Christian. Because when the world sees you suffer 
for Jesus and as a Christian, it's going to change how they view Jesus. When the world sees you suffer for Christ, it's going to change how they view Jesus. They're going to start to see him differently. There's a quote I want you to see by a guy named Tolian, and then his last name has a bunch of letters. Uh, it's Chivijan, and there are way too many consonants in that name, but you can say it, say it with me. It's Chivijan. Chivijan. See, I can't even pronounce it right. But he is actually, believe it, he's actually Billy Graham's grandson. So I'm not sure how I got that last name, but it's there. And uh, here's what it says. When we suffer for Jesus, we put on display for the world his magnificent sufficiency. When you and I suffer for Christ, we are showing the world what's valuable to us. And the hope is that as they see you suffer for him, and as they see how much you value Jesus, they're going to want him too. They're going to want Jesus as they see you cling to Jesus in the midst of your suffering. And so as you leave this place one day, many of you are going to suffer for what you believe. You're going to suffer for doing right. You're going to suffer for the sake of the gospel. You're going to suffer for the sake of Christ. In many and various ways, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. When I was in college, um, I was going through a phase of life where uh, it was about two years of, of being in no relationship. I was single for like two years in the middle there in college. Had no prospects, thought, you know, I better meet the woman of my, of my future quickly or it's just not going to happen. And there was a time in life where I was starting to get really bitter and jaded because I had a lot of friends or people that I knew, I should say, that were in relationships or they were being very reckless and they were just going from like one thing to another to another and just being really reckless, irresponsible, and not really honoring Christ in their relationships. And me being the self-righteous, judgmental type of person, I started to look at them and be like, you know what, I'm doing the right thing, and they're living in sin, and comparing myself. But what happened was, I began to get tempted. I began to be pulled into, you know what, what if I just say, forget this whole thing for a while, and just start living for myself, and just start dating people the way that they're dating. Because you know what, here's the deal. They're having fun on Friday, and I'm not. That's the bottom line. And I started to be pulled in this direction. And it was like, I'm so glad that, I don't say this arrogantly because it's not meant to be interpreted that way, but it was like God just shook me back into reality to say, are you crazy? Do you really think you're going to find satisfaction in that? Do you really think you're going to find something better than me on that pathway? And this is going to happen for you. When you leave this place, if you're going to follow Christ, you're going to suffer for the gospel. You're going to suffer on some level when it comes to following Jesus. It's going to happen. And you're going to have some lonely nights. You're going to be in the dorm room. You're going to have some lonely nights if you make that decision. And the question is going to be, will you choose to suffer for doing what's right or will you choose to suffer for doing what's wrong? Because there really is no other alternative. Suffering will come your way either way. Do you want to suffer for what's right or suffer for what's wrong? Because suffering will come your way no matter what. 
Go ahead and discuss uh, your first four questions at your tables. Go ahead and discuss. Let's look at the next part of the passage here. Look at verse 27 of chapter 1. Look with us at Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And Paul says this. He says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Another long sentence, I'll warn you. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So just like last time, with Paul, you've got to take a, micro, a, uh, a magnifying glass and focus just on one thing to get something out of that. So we're going to focus at, on verse 28 where he says, him we, could, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This is exactly what we do here on Sundays and Wednesdays. Our entire goal of what happens on Sunday and Wednesday here is to mature you in Christ. Now, it may not always look like that, especially whenever you're eating like some kind of whipped cream during a game on, on Wednesday night, but all of this is to propel you, to mature you, towards Christ's likeness. We don't just want to see you submit your life to Christ, and then that's it, or surrender your life to Christ, and that's it. But we want to see you live in community and live on mission for the sake of Christ, and that's what it means to live towards maturity. If I was, if I was speaking to, um, we take this part of our job here very seriously. I know we have a lot of fun here and stuff, but we also take the preaching of God's word, as Stephen preached in the main service, doctrine, beliefs, grounding you, rooting you in your faith. We take that part of what we do here very, very seriously. Our leaders spend a lot of time prepping for Wednesdays. Um, on, for Sunday morning, I would say at minimum, I would prep for between seven to nine hours just to talk up here for 25, 30 minutes. Now, you might think, why are you spending all that time? Because we, we take it seriously. We, wanna, we want to grow you. We want to mature you. That's our whole purpose. And if I were to speak to a group of youth pastors, I would say this. I would say, don't make the point of what you do just playing games and then throw a little 10-minute devotional at them because they can handle more than that. And they want more than that. They're hungry for it. I saw this when I was an intern of the church I came from in Arlington. I saw this in our high school kids. I saw these students that were just craving, wanting to hear from God's word, and, and at times we were throwing out like, you know, just basic stuff, just little devotionals here and there, mixed in with pizza and volleyball, right? But if we're really going to root you and ground you and grow you in your faith, then we take this seriously. We take the idea that you've got to be mature in your faith when you leave this place. We take that idea seriously here, and everything we do here is geared towards that in grounding you in your faith. Look with me at uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. It says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, 
to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Once again, I want to take out the magnifying glass and focus on verse 4, where he says, that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. What does that mean exactly? It means arguments that sound right. It means arguments that sound persuasive. It means arguments that sound convincing, but are not true. Certain things sound Christian, but they're not Christian. Certain things sound right, but they're not right. And many of you will be tempted in this way when you leave this place. You're going to hear things that sound good, that sound plausible, that sound right, but they're not rooted in the gospel and they're false. I've brought up several examples of this the last couple of weeks, and I'll do the same today. Um, I want to look at music throughout this series, just songs that um, we're not going to play this. We're just going to look at some lyrics, but there's some. every song has ideas behind it and philosophy behind it, and I would say musicians are modern-day philosophers. They're getting ideas out through the means of music, and then people like what they hear, not just the sounds of the music, but also the sound of the words. Like, that, sounds, that sounds right to me. I connect with that. That's, that sounds plausible to me. And I'm going to adopt that into my life, and I'm going to live by it. And I want to give you a couple of examples of that. Um, there's a song that came out recently, especially, and I don't mean for this to be a, this is not going to be a talk about homosexuality or gay marriage, but the song is related to that. And it's a song, Same Love. And it's... Uh, sort of taken off recently, especially with the recent focus on uh, gay marriage. But I want you to see something in this song, because it's not just about that topic. There's a lot more of these plausible ideas in this song. Here's a few of the lyrics. Go to the next slide, please. Uh, That's not the slide I'm talking about. Go to the, it should say, yeah, there we go. That's not it either, actually. There's a What's that? Are we missing a, a slide there? Maybe we're missing a slide. All right, well, let me uh, read it to you then. Um, here's the, the first part that I wanted to read to you. The right-wing conservatives think it's a decision in, re- in relation to homosexuality, and you can be cured with some treatment in religion, man-made rewiring of a predisposition. I feel like I should be wrapping this, but I'm not. Uh, playing God, America the brave still fears what we don't know, and God loves all his children. It's somehow forgotten. But we paraphrase a book written 3,500 years ago. I don't know. And then the idea that he's trying to communicate that our culture adopts is this. And it's simple. It's the Bible's outdated. I mean, everyone knows the Bible's outdated. I mean, really? You're going to look at this book? Just look at this thing. Have you read what's in here? You're going to look at this. This thing just looks old. It's bound in leather. What other book is like that? It's got shiny, leafy pages. It makes no sense half the time. I mean, it, you can't find your way around this book. Even Christians don't understand this book. Even Christians have to go read other books to understand this book. So why in the world should we believe this book and, and, and live by it? Because this was written a long time ago. Some books, we don't even know who wrote them. The book of Hebrews. 
No one knows who wrote Hebrews. Why are we buying this? This can't be true. This book's outdated. And we set it on a shelf, and it collects dust. And at the very best, it becomes a book that we allude to or refer to. Yeah, there's a little story in the Bible. They're not really true. They're allegories, metaphors. They have some symbolism and some meaning, but we're not going to live our life by that because the Bible's outdated. That's one plausible argument that's put forth in this song. The second verse I want you to see is this, and it's the one that Matt initially went to. It says, gay is synonymous with the lesser. It's the same hate that caused wars from religion, gender to skin color, complexion of your pigment, the same fight that led people to walkouts and sit-ins, human rights for everybody, there is no difference, live on and be yourself. And the plausible argument in that part of the song is this, is that my temptations are my identity. What I'm tempted with is my identity. And so we equate it with things like gender and race and the whole movement becomes associated with the civil rights movement and people would say things like, you know, my, what I'm tempted by sexually, that becomes my identity. That is my, that's who I am. Be yourself, that's who I am. And this, it's a plausible argument that people buy into. The last part of the song, and this is the part that's repeated over and over again, it says, and I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. And I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. And just very simply, the idea being put forth there is this idea that change is impossible. Change is impossible. And this one sounds so right because it's partly true. Because I would say this. I would say change is impossible without Jesus. Yeah, you can't change yourself in your own flesh. No one can. No matter what your sin struggle is, you can't change yourself apart from Jesus. You know what's really interesting about this? Is I get uh, ESP in the magazine, and on the front cover yesterday, it came in the mail. On the front cover, guess who's on the front cover of ESP in the magazine this week? You guys know? Anybody get the magazine? Who is it? No, not Lance Armstrong. It's the Honey Badger. You guys know the honey badge from LSU, right? And the whole story, listen, listen. The whole story is about how he's changed and how he's a new man, right? And so on the one hand, our culture says you can't change, live who you are, be who you are. On the other hand, we celebrate change and say, look, he's a new man. He's ready for the NFL draft. Somebody draft him. Here we go. And so we speak out of both sides of their mouths, culturally speaking. But I would say this, no one can truly change without Jesus. Change is impossible without Jesus. So these arguments, they sound persuasive, but are they true? Just because something sounds right, just because something sounds plausible, doesn't mean it is plausible. I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses uh, 9 to 11, it says this. Paul says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, 
nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be clear on this. This verse is not saying if someone has these sin struggles in their life or sins in their past, it is not saying that person can't be saved. That's not the meaning here. You've got to look at the first couple of words. It says, do you not know that the unrighteous, meaning anyone who is not a believer and does not have the righteousness of Christ applied to their lives, that's, that person's in the category of unrighteous, not because of their behavior or lack of sin, but because of what Jesus did for them. That's how you become righteous, putting your faith and trust and belief in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Then you are seen as righteous, but only because of what Christ did, not because of what you did. So when it says unrighteous, it's referring to people that do not, have not placed their faith and trust in him. And then it goes on to list off the kinds of things that those people do. Their life is characterized by these kinds of sins. That's what he's saying here. Look at verse 11, because here's the kicker with verse 11. It says, and such were some of you, but you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if someone says, is there anything you can do that's going to keep you from being able to be saved? The answer is no. Look at this list. It pretty much covers lots of sin. And in verse 11, Paul reminds us, and such were some of you. There is nothing new under the sun, people. When people in our culture try to say things like, we've got to have progress, what they are doing is they are taking sin and then relabeling the celebration in our culture of that sin, progress. They are relabeling the celebration and acceptance of certain sin and saying, yeah, this is progress. Hey, listen, guys, that word is in the Bible. There's nothing on this list that has been new recently. These are not new things. These have been around for thousands of years. We are not that creative when it comes to sin. We just keep doing the same things over and over and over again. That's all we do. And Paul says, and such were some of you, because when Jesus saves you, he changes your identity. I can't change even if I tried even if I wanted to, and such were some of you. Go ahead and finish with your last three questions at your tables.